All right, good morning, good morning. Good morning, Arbor. My name is Dave. Hello to you. Good morning. The last three minutes was quite upbeat, and now we may just return to our regularly scheduled programming, which is, oh my gosh, we're talking about pain. So I hope you enjoyed those three at a higher elevation. But all people suffer pain and loss. Just the simple fact of being alive makes you a candidate to be the winning lottery pick and getting the payout of pain and grief and loss. It isn't just Davy and Jake that have walked, walked dark hallways as we've heard about the last two weeks. It visits all of us. We may tend to look at Davy and Jake and think, oh my gosh, you've lost a child. I've, I've just been fired from my job a couple of times and it really spun me out. I don't think it's necessary, helpful or fair to, to compare grief and loss experiences. You have your story. It takes you to a valley and you have to walk that and somebody else has their story. We can't fully understand 100% comprehensively what they're going through, nor can they understand what we're going through because we're not in one another's shoes. As you listen to the testimonies and the stories and the reflections that people will be reading this morning, try and look for some key trails. What's going on in their life emotionally and mentally and physically and spiritually? because we are comprehensive in our composition. I've known pain. In the last two, two and a half years, I've had this vortex, this perfect storm that has been taking place. The first part of that is Magnolia, is Maggie, the death of one of our grandkids. It's been well documented here at Arbor. But when the medical prognosis was bad, when the medical statistics were cold and harsh, you could make a case that it set God up for his finest hour. And yet the preferred miracle never happened. My grandpa heart got stomped like elephants smashing grapes for wine. It put me so deep into the grief and loss cycle that I couldn't find a ray of light on some days. Etched into my mind, I still see her in her Disney dress running up and down my hallway in her distinctive, unique style of, of running, if you ever saw Maggie run. Many days, my eyes were like volcanoes, and hot lava was cascading down my cheeks. And I was reminded again that actually in our tear ducts, it's like there's a microwave oven that preheats them before they fall out of your lower eye. This unwanted assignment of death of a loved one, that usually visited other people. And yet we got that homework assignment. Didn't ask for it, didn't volunteer for it, didn't want it. Wanted to kick it to the curb. A phrase to describe this part of my perfect storm, wrung out. 
wrung out, just twisted and compressed. But part number two in my vortex, this perfect storm that I've walked in my recent years, is I had to reinvent myself as a 60-year-old. Woohoo! This fun times! So excited to do this. After working 37 years in church or parachurch ministry, those doors closed. Pastoral work had been my bread and butter, my DNA. It's my wheelhouse. That's, it's what I do. For almost four decades, that was my experience. I assumed this would be sustainable until, well, the end. Then I realized a little bit of, in my perception, this, okay, there's a little bit of a glass ceiling at 60 in the context of church or parachurch organizations. Knowing the transition would take place, I was an associate pastor at the time, and knowing that a transition would take place, I looked for, I looked for other ministry jobs. <clears throat> Voted off the island. Didn't work. Statistically, only 10% of pastors retire as pastors. I stumbled across that statistic. That then kicked me to the curb. Why did I assume that I would be in the 10% as the more typical 90% that have to go on and reinvent themselves? So as a 60-year-old, I began working two part-time jobs. You know who works two part-time jobs? 25-year-olds, not 60-year-olds. Fun times. The phrase for this season of pain and grief and loss and frustration was washed out. I was washed out of the more typical and predictable pastoral experiences that I'd been used to. Challenge number three. Whereas the first two that I've mentioned are more recent in terms of two, two and a half years, this type of time season, this one has about a 15-year shelf life on it. This is a challenge with one of my daughters. We have four adult kids. These history bullet items that I'm about to read to you, like I say, span more than 15 years She's been diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Maybe it's borderline personality disorder. Does it really matter? Who cares what the label is? Life for this daughter is mainly decided by impulse. And that can be a cruel master. It's also wrapped in relentless guilt and shame typically leads to risky behavior, sexual promiscuity and experimentation, damaged relationships, damaged careers, and for some, suicidal tendencies. So I've seen the restless, energetic, talkative, reckless, powerful, euphoric period. I've also seen the crash and burn, depression, Worthlessness, apathy, hopelessness. With this disorder, there is alignment with abusive relationships, and addictions have been part of this as well. 
the emotional and relational boat wake that comes from the drama of this lifestyle comes to the shore and leaves family and friends in an ero state of erosion. Like water constantly dripping onto the surface of the rock, over time, it can create a hole. The phrase for this part of my perfect, perfect storm, worn out. Worn out. So these three for me, the death of Maggie, reinventing myself and ongoing challenges with one of my daughters whom I deeply love is my pain story. But I knew Jesus was with me when several things happened. When the Holy Spirit would whisper to me through his word, see, if we say, how's your spiritual passion? If we say, all right, 10 is a high. My spiritual passion for a lot of the last two to two and a half years has been about a three. And if I'm honest, I just exaggerated. It's probably a two. About all I could do was return to the simple beauty of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, which many of you know, and it starts out, trust in the Lord with all of your heart. In my worn out, washed out, wrung out, I would just kind of exhale that and say, I'm just trusting you with this. I wasn't uber zealous and passionate. It was more like... Okay, what are you going to do? God. I knew God was with me when the grief and loss support group that Jill and I attended gave me the gift of community where we could go and we could talk story. I also had a weekly date night with my wife and we read an excellent book called A Grace Disguised that helped us unlock our minds and our hearts and then discuss things and cry and pray with one another. Just the two of us sitting on crummy leather couches in my living room. Those became special nights. I knew the Lord was with me when he provided employment if your kids or grandkids are involved in the Bellevue School District, ladies and gentlemen, you're looking at the bus driver for Route 50. <laughs> and if that's your kindergartners or first graders that are dropping F-bombs on my bus, what is going on? They talk like that. Not all of them, but my goodness. And it's too long of a story to tell here, but I have an additional, or one of my other part-time jobs recently changed, and I'm basically an independent pastor at large as I work for a nonprofit foundation. My adult daughter with bipolar disorder who was recently homeless and living in her broken-down car outside my house by the curb spent 24 days in inpatient recovery for her, for her addictions. This is a gain of a few miles in a thousand-mile journey. 
Many have learned to manage their bipolar disorder and experience a fulfilling life. And I knew God was with me when I would connect with him during worship, be it privately as I'm just watching YouTube or whether it was in a corporate setting like this. And I love the fact that our deck boss, Jake, forgot when it was his time to come up here because he was caught up in the moment. Since this vortex of pain in my life, my spiritual passion has resurrected. I'm more vibrant and alive. I've learned afresh that if you want to hear God laugh, tell him your plans. And I have determined to finish strong and live out a missional calling in my life using the spiritual gifts and abilities that he has given to me until I breathe my last, although I was an endangered species for a while. And as we listen to these reflections with these amazing people who are about to come up here, please remember that their vulnerability is on display. They're taking their heart and their star story and they're holding, out, holding it out to you saying, this is my stuff. And they're trusting us with their journey and their path. Life is messy. It's not tidy like some recently made bed at the Holiday Inn where the corners are all tucked in. But in the pain, God has been present. These amazing, beautiful people wrote out their testimonies and I'd like to welcome Becky here to share with us this morning. Becky. this okay? Okay. I've known pain. Actually, I still know pain. So much so that earlier this week, I penned an anguished prayer of desperation regarding the messiness and instability of chronic pain. And I wrestled with God on the timing and the intensity of the season. But let me back up in time and do a quick walkthrough for you. My story began with a long-term personal crisis I endured beginning in 2007. An important help in my recovery was to exercise walk. By 2011, I could not walk without pain and sought medical help. I had back surgery in the next year to remove a cyst and bone spurs in my back, and the surgery did not help. Fast forward to 2016. My problems had escalated, and I had a radical back surgery where hardware was added to my spine. Again, this surgery didn't end the suffering, and in time, it increased. A lot more I could say on that. Today, I feel pain all of the time, yet in varying degrees. I feel pain and numbness in my back, right hip, leg, and foot. What I accomplish each day is based on the level of pain that I'm experiencing. This week has been particularly rough. An example was the day I started out on a series of errands, and as pain increased, I, be I determined to press through. Two hours later, I ended my plans and returned home for stretching and icing and taking my emotions captive to manage the increased pain. When my husband got home from work, he took over and he ministered to me. The rest of the evening was spent recovering and reordering my priorities. I know Jesus is with me in this suffering. He guides me when I reach out for help in the medical community. He accepts me when I do stomp and cry and beg for a miracle. 
He helps soothe my response to pain and calm my thoughts and emotions. He enables me to praise him and be thankful in spite of how I feel. I turn to gratitude in the little joys of life, and thus I see his hand in small things, all which are very healthy distractions to pain. He is giving me my husband, who sacrifices his life for me in dealing with my suffering as well as giving a giving and accepting family that has adapted with me as my world has gotten smaller. They also bring a lot of fun and laughter into my world. God is a blessing to me, or has blessed me with a group of people, of friends to be real with and pray with and even cry with me when things get intense. He's with me when I ponder and sit with him on the very tough questions like, where are you when it hurts? When it what if I become more disabled? How do I not lose hope? Do you still heal today? Where is the, where is the dignity in this? Are you certain I'm not being punished? And what are your plans for me in this? Since this is chronic and ongoing pain, I continue to seek him to seek for relief and also to live my life fully amidst the discomfort, uncertainties, losses, and fears. I have the privilege of coming alongside of people the Lord has brought to me to help build up, sustain, and encourage, all, the same, all with the same help freely given to me. When I hurt the most, I pray the word is a weapon, and I wage war for others who are in distress and who also need hope. I have acquired a loaded box of scriptures, experiences, tools, and acceptance to draw from and to give out. I'm trusting and asking him to release his purposes and direction for my future. However, one thing I do have trouble doing is accepting chronic pain as a way of life. So far, I cannot do that yet. For now, I will pray for that miracle. I even believe that in this very moment, my father could send his power and heal me instantly and anybody else who is suffering. In the meantime, I know my God. He remains good, always. He remains faithful, loving, and wise. He gives power to the weak, and he is with me in pain. He is the God who sees, who sees me in pain and has compassion. His relationship with me is invaluable as my Savior, Redeemer, Lord God, healer, and friend. I end with a passage penned by Oswald Chambers. If you are going to be used by God, he will take you through a number of experiences that are not meant for you personally at all. They are designed to make you useful in his hands and to enable you to understand what takes place in the lives of others. In the history of the Christian church, the tendency has been to avoid being identified with the sufferings of Jesus Christ. We never realize at the time what God is putting us through, and then suddenly we come to a place of enlightenment and realize God has strengthened me, and I didn't even know it. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. A question. Sure. I want to give you a word picture and have you respond to what this might mean to you. Okay. I, heard a I heard a pastor in Texas give this illustration, and he was talking about his own entry into cancer. Mm -hmm. And he said, 
here's our two hands. He said, with one, I use my thumb and index finger and I pinch my nose because, I, because what I'm going through stinks. I hate it. I don't want it. I don't like it. I don't understand it. And so I, I pinch my nose. But with the other hand, I raise my hand in worship. In the context of what you've gone through, how do you respond to this? Well, I think there's actually a lot of things uh, through the Bible that are hard, are hard to understand. But I firmly believe you can have one and the other. And even if you don't understand them, they are both true. And you can walk with both. And so I'm not quite sure if you're asking me to describe a word picture or just wanted me to respond to that. Just to respond to it, yeah. Um, yeah, so um, kind of just what I said, that you can have both and you can live victoriously amidst it. And you don't diminish the one because God is good and therefore I don't feel and I don't suffer. Um, they are compatible just like we don't understand the Trinity fully, this is something we may not understand fully, but you, do ne you never diminish who the Lord is and humanize who he is based on your experience and how you're feeling. Thank you, Becky. As Becky transitions down, Angela, go ahead and come on up, please. Hello, my name is Angela. So, um, I felt pain many times and in many ways, and today I'm going to share with you about some of the pain I've been through and what I've learned. The pain started back in May of 2008. My dad was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and they told us that it was a slow-growing cancer and he would live long and likely die from other health reasons. Just four years later, he was informed that his cancer had changed and it was now fast-growing. They gave him at most five years to live. The doctors advised a ten tandem stem cell transplant, and he started that back in October of 2012, and it went well. He was just very weak after it, which was hard because he was my rock. They started with the second stem cell transplant uh, with a donor two months later, uh, and two months after that, he was admitted to the hospital for what we were told was pneumonia. And then the next morning, he was put on a ventilator. That Monday, we were called in and told us, uh, they told us that it was not pneumonia, that in fact, that harsh radiation that he'd gone through had caused his lungs to bleed and that he wouldn't make it through the next 24 hours. And so all we could do was pray. We had a lot of people praying with us. We got a miracle, um, but it just wasn't the miracle we were expecting. But it was our miracle. We got to spend another five weeks with him. Our family from Kansas flew out here and visited for a week with him in the hospital. And we got to sit with him, to talk to him, and see him smile a lot. He came off the ventilator even. And during that time, before my dad passed, it was beautifully hard. I felt God's presence, and I know that God was with me through it all. We had so many people praying with us, and yet, and I could feel the peace of the Lord. And there were definitely times that I felt alone, but yet I knew the Lord was with us. As time went on, my dad's condition worsened and I could feel God's peace of knowing what was next, that his time with us was ending, but his life in heaven for eternity was about to begin. In the end, on March 18th, 2013, his body was too weak, and his organs were failing him. His earthly body was 
fading, and the Lord was ready to take him home. My young brother and I drove down as fast as we could that day to see him. We walked in, and he lit up with a huge smile, like he was just waiting for the rest of us to get there. Within minutes, his body started to give out, and we had him put on morphine. His heart was so strong. (laughs) Four hours later, his heart stopped, and he got to meet Jesus. Since then, my life has changed. My rock and my leader, the man who raised me, that was helping me raise my son, was gone. I felt alone, and I felt angry. I felt sick all the time. I felt pain, pain like I had never known. As the next four years went by, I changed a lot. I learned to lean on others. Around me, I learned that grief can come in waves. That sometimes I can feel completely okay, only to feel completely lost and depressed the next day. I learned how to understand more of how to deal with the pain. The pain has never left. It is still there, and it is a daily battle for me. The anger and frustration, though, that I felt earlier has faded, and I have come to understand more about God's mercy and grace. Since then, my life has changed again. (laughs) I'm in a new season of grief and pain. Something very different, and yet the same in a way. My son, he's seven, back in January of this year, was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. We spent a week at Children's Hospital learning how to check his blood sugar and how to calculate out his carbs he eats and how to give him shots of insulin four to five times a day. This is a newer, fresher grief. I pull from the things that I've learned over the years, though. But this is different, and now I battle again. I battle with why us. I battle with having the strength, and I battle with anger. Having my son sit in my arms and beg me to take it away, to fix it, the stabbing in my heart when he cries or screams at me, when I poke him too hard with his injections and he cries out, when he asks me, Mom, why can I not be normal? The pain is so different. Watching my dad die slowly in front of me was like watching my hero be defeated. Watching my son hurt and not be able to fix it as his mother is so different. I'm supposed to be his hero and protector. The anger and frustration through this has been so much less so. I have my questions. I deal with being overwhelmed constantly. I feel the pain of loss and sickness. It is intense and it's confusing and it's raw. But I am thankful for this time I am dealt, that this time I am dealt with a hand where my son will live, that I can keep him well. I hold on to the good little moments. I stretch time with family out longer. I laugh harder, but I leave myself room to cry a lot. I understand that Life will not be perfect on the side of heaven. One of my favorite songs since my dad passed is by Jars of Clay, and it's called The Valley Song. It says, you have led me to the sadness. I have carried this pain. On a back bruised, nearly broken, I'm crying out to you. I will sing of your mercy that leads me through valleys of sorrow to rivers of joy. I will probably not understand this pain this side of heaven. I will probably continue to fall and to cry out, but I will find my strength in my God and his mercy I will hold every moment of joy close to my heart because he is greater than all, and I will continue to live in his hope. Angela, thanks for sharing your story and your journey of pain. I'm happy to say I knew your dad. He was an amazing man. He loved Christ, loved the church, loved your, uh, your mom. <laughs> Which, by the way, Angela's mom is right across the foyer holding babies in the nursery. 
I thought about this. Here's the foundation of Steve and Sandy. I thought about three generations. So here's Steve and Sandy in love with one another, and they demonstrate a godly passion, godly pursuit, and the two of them in their marriage, and then they begin the next generation, you and your siblings. And now you have your son. And so you're standing on tall shoulders. What do you hope your son, as you navigate with him, his pain and grief and loss, which is linked to yours, what do you want your son to know about the character of God in, in dark times? What do you want him to know about God? I think the most important thing would be that he knows that he is never alone and that God is ever present. Um, even in, even like he'll show up in the most different ways. Um, I want him to know that this pain and suffering that we all endure is not because of something we've done, but it's because we live in this fallen world. Um, and I want him to know the Lord's hope that this world isn't our home and that this is where, this is just our passing through. And, um... I hope he knows his love. <laughs> He's fortunate to have a shepherding mother, nurturing mother like you. As Angela steps down, let's have Phil come up. You uh, will have to uh, forgive my accent. Um, my uh, speech is, uh, speech is uh, a bit slow, so uh, you will have to adjust to that. Uh, that's part of my story. Six years ago, I had a stroke. During the night when I slept, a clot went from my heart to my brain. In the morning, my family uh, left before I got up. As I arose, uh, I went to uh, clean my trailer, and I was confused. We have a burglar alarm, and it was set off. So when I went out, the sheriff came, and uh, I found that I didn't have any ability to speak and write. So the, he thought I was stealing the trailer, and he... Uh, it said, uh, get down on the ground, and he had his hand on his gun. Uh, so I realized that I had a stroke, and I was under arrest. Check, <laughs> checking my wallet, he called the Bellevue Fire Department, my employer, to verify my identity. They told him the person on the ground was me. And he hung up, and uh, he called 911, and I was transported to Evergreen Hospital. I have been a firefighter for uh, since 1979 in the Bellevue Fire Department. I have been on a lot of 911 calls, and uh, not many things stopped me from going on on calls except for colds and minor illnesses or sickness, um, but nothing 
big like a stroke. I was always strong and healthy. The cause of the stroke was a PFO. It's a, an opening in my heart that uh, was open instead of close at birth. So uh, that was the only time I knew it uh, in uh, 55 years that night. It was open and uh, I couldn't, uh, it was my heart or my brain was uh, starting to die, so I couldn't speak or write. I thought it would be like uh, amnesia. I will uh, forget for a little while, and then uh, I will remember to speak it again. However, it was completely gone. I had to learn all over in a different part of my brain. So uh, I had to say the alphabet, A, A, B, B, C, C, like an infant. That pulls a dilemma for me. Uh, I couldn't speak, so my career will be over. And uh, my uh, income will uh, dramatically uh, change. I didn't know what my family would think of me uh, on, my, uh, on my work. Although I was unhappy about my stroke, I wasn't angry with God. I believe that God is sovereign. He has the power and the mind to uh, let me go through chaos. He can do anything that he wants. And uh, again, I, I will go along with him. But uh, unless he uh, shuts the door on me, I will uh, continue to draw upon his race to uh, do my career again. I know that uh, with 911 calls, it's a, a bag of worms, and uh, you have to take one worm at a time to figure it out, and 911 calls, that's the part of my stroke. It's a bag of worms, but I was uh, getting one worm at a time but I had no idea how long it would take to speak again. For speech, I did almost 100 speech sessions. Besides the homework that the speech therapy people gave me, I recited the 23rd Psalm and the Lord's Prayer over and over and over again. I got CDs on gospel music and I sang for about an hour a day, but I did it alone. I'm a horrible singer. <laughs> there were highs and lows on my uh, family's path through recovery. I say, say my pat, family's path. My wife and kids lived uh, through my struggle. I'm thankful for my wife that uh, her uh, ability to have me swim, I uh, worked out over and over because I couldn't talk. I had to do something. So she enabled me to do that for many hours. I even swam with you. <laughs> Cat, uh, countless times uh, I was spent fighting for my job. Uh, according to the International Union of Firefighting, no one in the uh, nation came back from a stroke that was speechless and came back for work. My job uh, was unsure if I can uh, work again.
so uh, to f perform my duties. But I know that God was me, uh, with me because he gave me hope that there were angels along the way. One angel was uh, Dr. Copas. He was uh, an amazingly uh, competent and highly skilled neurologist, and he's my mentor for paramedic medicine. He has said that um, I had to get the heart shield to prevent more clots from uh, going to my brain. So he uh, introduced me to a Dr. Demopoulos, a cardiologist. That was the uh, second uh, angel that I uh, met. He sealed the openings uh, for my heart through my arteries instead of cutting my ribs and doing open heart uh, surgery. It was fast, but the insurance company denied the claim, and it was about 100,000 bucks. So we uh, considered bankruptcy because uh, it was uh, getting so low on the funds with the uh, stroke. But uh, Dr. Demopoulos uh, stated that the, um, the insurance company denied me the claim. He will do the surety for free. He, uh, we didn't know him before, but uh, he was an angel for uh, selflessly serving me for no personnel to gain. I discovered a third angel, my attorney, that uh, heard that I was uh, going through the uh, insurance denial, uh, said that she will cover me or uh, do with the attorney fee for free. She was uh, married to another firefighter, and she decided to again, defend me for free. She did an amazing amount of work, uh, again, at no advantage to herself. Her name was uh, Terry Justice, and she interviewed my daughters for a lot of time, and um, the daughters charged a lot of money for um, defending the case, but they didn't charge me a dime. Dr. Kopas or Dr. Demopoulos. When the, Dr. Demopoulos defended me for at least 20 minutes, no one challenged him. There was no questions of the uh, insurance council. Unofficially, they paid the claim, and unofficially, they said they will glad to pay the claim. That's God. <laughs> Earning the right to uh, work in my profession has been hard. It was embarrassing to have so many needs with a competent crew, fry, fry crew. I've worked hard, but that wasn't the only thing. It's uh, taking grace by my family, colleagues, daughters, my Christian brothers and sisters, and God. I got my job as um, a fair firefighter, but not as a paramedic. Uh, they didn't trust my speech, so, uh, but they did hire me back as a, a firefighter and uh, as an EMT. Now when I do 911 calls, exams on patients. I explained that I have an accent. 
at the end of the exam, they can't guess what country I'm from. <laughs> I get uh, all kinds of interesting uh, answers. Uh, Poland, Germany, Russia, South Africa, <laughs> Vietnam. <laughs> but I say to them, I uh, come from Eastern Woodenville. <laughs> Before I tell them I had a stroke. To uh, sum up the story, I'm still working for the Bellevue Fire Department. I uh, intended to retire next year. I hope to do a medi uh, medical missions and other work that I can still do. I will go next week to uh, Nepal. Um, I have to, um, second time I went to Nepal for the earthquake uh, mission. I don't know what uh, God's plan with, um, would be with the uh, stroke. Maybe he wanted to show hope for other workers. I know that God, if I can't speak well, I will still serve him. Despite the lows and the highs of uh, metal to go disabilities, I'm uh, convinced that uh, God is a good God. Amen. Thank you, Phil. Let's thank Phil and have Carla come. Hello, Carla. Okay, just to give you a little timeline, I turned 53 just a couple of days ago. So back when I was 51, a long time ago, I really figured out that I had experienced enough pain to last a lifetime. I was sure that since I had made it to 50 that things were going to turn around and I had lived through the worst. By 51, I had finally accepted the fact that neither of my parents wanted my siblings and myself. My dad had left my mom and my brothers and my sister when I was just six years old. And then when my 14-year-old sister tried to take her own life when she was 14, my mom gave us all away, um, and I was me being the oldest at 15. I had my first real boyfriend when I was 18, and we got married just after my 21st birthday. After 19 years and three kids and every effort to save that marriage, it eventually ended in divorce. In the thick of all of this, our middle son was diagnosed with a potentially fatal autoimmune disease. And we almost lost him when he was 14 before they knew it was wrong. The good news is that he's 28 today. Just like everyone else, I know pain. Pain that has been with me for a really long time. Finally, in January of 2016, things were looking up. I had dealt with the pain. I felt healed and I was confident that it was my turn to be happy. I had a good job. My kids are all adults and I was pretty much free to live life. Enter Mike. Mike was the brother of one of my very good friends of over 20 years. My friend Carol decided that we should meet, and I couldn't think of a reason not to, even though I was done with men. On our first date, the guy showed up with a cribbage board. 
I thought he was such a nerd. But he was better looking in person than he was in pictures, and we clicked right away. Our personalities were similar, and so were our heartaches. Just six weeks into us officially dating, Mike insisted on driving me up to Mount Vernon so that I could meet with my father, who had wanted to meet with me and talk face-to-face about our relationship. Mike sat in the car, and my father didn't know it. But Mike sensed that it wasn't going to go well, and he wanted to be there to pick me up when I crumbled. He was right, and I was so thankful that he was there. We had so much fun together. We played in this river. We played endless games of that stupid cribbage. (laughs) And we went to a lot of concerts. Growing Growing up, Mike had gone to church. But like me, he never felt like he fit in So, as an adult. So on Sundays, or any of the other day of the week for that matter, Mike liked to take the quad up into the hills up behind his house, and we would have both sunrise and sunset services. That's where he would talk to God, he would talk about God, and we would take in the beauty of our surroundings. We had fun doing so many things, and we had fun doing nothing. We were truly happy. Mike decided he wanted to celebrate our first year together by going to a concert in Vegas. So on New Year's Eve, we saw Bruno Mars. After the concert, I confessed that I might have a little crush on Bruno. (laughs) Mike rolled his eyes and said he'd practice on his moves. (laughs) He was super protective of me as we made our way down the very crowded strip. I've never seen anything like it. And he always took care of me. It took me a whole year to let that happen because I was always the caregiver to everyone else. Mike showed me how to accept love, and he told me every day that I was worthy. We came home from Vegas, and on January 5th of this year, we celebrated Mike's 53rd birthday with his mom and his two kids. The next day, Friday, I was sick, so I had to skip our usual date night. Saturday the 7th, just a week after our trip, our trip, I got a text from Mike asking what I needed from the store. He was bringing me groceries and coming to babysit me after he went and paid his phone bill. I told him I didn't need anything, but he, of course, showed up with Tylenol and a bag full of soup and juice and yogurt. He got to my house just after 10, and he told me about his trip to the Verizon store and how he had gotten to um, thank a World War II vet for his service and how he had broken into a dance when Bruno was playing in the store showing me his silly moves. We laughed, he ate leftover pizza, and then he had to run home and put his own groceries away before he came back to watch the Hawks later that night. He wouldn't let me hug him because he was afraid he would get sick and I would have to babysit him the next weekend. So he blew me a kiss from the door and he was on his way about an hour afterwards. Just as I was falling back to sleep, I noticed my phone all lit up and I noticed that the text messages were from Mike, so I picked it up and The text messages were a little garbled, but I wasn't concerned because he had just learned the voice-to-text trick, and he thought he was funny sending me. But I got that he was at the fish ladder and that he was just a mile from his home and that he wasn't feeling good. He was sweating profusely. I called him. (laughs) Sorry, I'm so nervous. (laughs) He was sweating profusely. He wasn't having chest pains, but he's... He was stiffening up. He asked if he thought it, if I asked him if I thought it was his heart, and he asked him if he had any aspirin in the car. I kept telling him I was going to call 911, and he kept insisting no. He thought it was a panic attack and just wanted me to stay on the phone with him until it passed. 
After nine minutes, I finally told him I was hanging up and calling and that I would call him right back. I made the call, and then as promised, I called him back. We talked for three minutes, and then he either passed out or dropped the phone. I tried nine times to call him back and no answer. I knew the ambulance would be there any minute, so my son and I headed to the hospital. I had told Mike I would meet him there. While my son and I were waiting, the sheriff called me to find out what had happened, as apparently Mike was already unconscious when they arrived. They told me they were still working on him. It was about 1.15. At about 1.45, I got a second call from the sheriff. This time, he asked me if I was alone and was I was in, in a safe place, and I just knew. Mike passed away at 1.36 p.m. on Saturday, January 7th just a little more than two hours after he was singing and dancing in my living room and just two days after his 53rd birthday. <laughs> I knew God was with me the Monday after Mike passed. I had followed Magnolia's story almost from the beginning, and to this day I still am not sure how Jake and I became Facebook friends, but I kind of feel like there was some intervention there as well. I remember that... <laughs> I remember after Maggie passed and I read Jake's story about he was, how he was in the garage one very early morning and God had told him to plant a church. I said to myself that if that ever happened, I just might go. I was so impressed with his family's conviction before, during, and after diagnosis that I knew that there had to be more than what I was seeing for myself. This was before I had even met Mike. That Monday after he passed, I got the Facebook announcement announcing the first service on January 29th. It really felt like a sign, and I had three weeks to prepare myself for something I was honestly dreading. The night before that Sunday, I was sick again, and I remember thinking to myself, oh, good, I don't have to go. <laughs> the next morning, I felt 100% better than I had on any day since Mike had passed away, and I wanted to go. I did, and that was the very, and that very first morning, Jake found me, having never met me, or not even knowing how we were Facebook friends, which I think is kind of rude, but, <laughs> but anyways, that day, he took the time, he took the time to listen to my story, and now here I am. Since January 7th, a lot has changed. I know that there is no happy ever after here on earth. I know that even with this worst pain, that there is more pain to come. But ultimately, I know that God has a plan and that if I surrender to him and stop trying to fix me and everyone else, I know that one day I will get to see my guy again. He's up there waiting and laughing and probably practicing his moves. Until then, I will talk about him. I'll be there for his kids, whatever they may need. And more importantly, I will try my very hardest to let myself be loved by God and trust that one day I will understand. And let's welcome up Chris and Allie, please. I've known pain when my selfishness and manipulation caused my marriage to fall apart over the course of five years. I'm sorry. Many destructive choices 
including having an emotional affair and keeping unhealthy friendships and verbally and emotionally abusing my wife. There were various times in our relationship where we tried to fix things, but because I never addressed the underlying sin of selfishness and control, these fixes only had a band-aid effect and only lasted so long. I felt like I was walking on eggshells every day, never knowing what mood he would be in. Because of what he did and said, I began to lose confidence and feel even more shame. I kept people at arm's length because I felt if anyone were to casually ask me how I was doing, I wouldn't be able to hide the pain and loneliness anymore, and I just burst into tears. I felt alone at home, and I spent all my energy focusing on our two young daughters. Because of this, um, I knew I couldn't bring any more kids into the chaos of our family, and I mourned the loss of those future children I had dreamed about. I felt trapped in a destructive marriage that had no idea how I would survive 50 or 60 more years. All of this culminated during an argument Allie and I had where I ended up holding her to the ground. Allie packed up our two daughters and moved in with her parents that day and filed for a temporary protection order. I wasn't able to contact Allie and I wasn't able to see the girls without professional supervision. Even though I had uh, visitation, it was still, still painful to be supervised by a professional, writing down everything I did with them. I spent several months in the house alone, with no one to greet me when I came home from work, no one to talk to. I hit rock bottom, lost my family, and was physically alone. But God was there for me in my loneliness and pain. I knew Jesus was with me, when after weeks of crying out to him for help in my brokenness, I heard him. It wasn't a lightning bolt of a revelation, but a simple verse that came to me. Be still and know I am God. I had heard this first time and time again, but I had never thought about what it means. At that moment, I realized I needed to step back from life and realize God is in control of all things, that ultimately his will is accomplished. And like Jake said, you need to take time to stop and to listen as well. And that's when I realized I subconsciously thought I could act a certain way or do certain things to try and control God. In the same way, I tried to control Allie with my abuse. Through God's amazing grace, he opened my eyes to see how far off the path I'd strayed. I now see God was with me the entire time. But from that point on, I felt a peace about confronting my sin and finding help. During our separation, a song was released called Touch the Sky by Hillsong. I won't go through the whole song, but God used the following words to comfort me. My heart beating, my soul breathing, I found my life when I laid it down. Upward falling, spirit soaring. I touched the sky when my knees hit the ground. Those lyrics were so profound since they seemed to document exactly what I was going through. And they held true that it wasn't until I laid my life down and my knees hit the ground 
surrendering my full life to God and giving up control, that I found my true life in him. With everything stripped away, I only had God left. And he's the only one I need. It was scary to acknowledge my sin and do the hard work, seeking help, not knowing if it was too late to repair our marriage. And the damage I caused my new, no matter the outcome, God was still in control. So during our separation, I just felt God telling me to give my husband one last chance. I had heard both extremes from friends and family. On the one side, I was told I should walk away and divorce him immediately because um, God didn't want me to stay in an abusive relationship. And on the other hand, I'd been told that as a Christian, I'd made a commitment before God um, to stay with my husband for better or worse and that I had to stay. But God prompted me to read a book called Desperate Marriages by Gary Chapman. It was the first book I read that counseled to separate for safety while still giving an opportunity for repentance and reconciliation. I followed the ideas in the book and formulated a list of things Chris would need to do on his own to show me he was serious about making drastic changes. These were things he would need to do before we could even consider going to counseling together or the girls and I moving back in. Things like enrolling in a domestic violence course and seeing a counselor regularly. At the time, I really thought it was making this list for my own benefit um, so that when he rejected it and our marriage ended, I could walk away knowing I gave him every last opportunity. God had given me a great peace that I was going to be all right no matter what happened after I sent the list. It was the first time during our separation that I felt so peaceful. God was there in the most uncertain time in my life, letting me know he would take care of me no matter what Chris decided. When I received the response from Chris's lawyer, it was more confirmation that God had been walking with both of us through our separation. Chris had already voluntarily enrolled in the domestic violence course and began counseling and was more than willing to do the rest of the things on the list. We had had no contact between us during this time, but God clearly had been speaking to both of us separately and preparing both of our hearts to fight for our marriage. Since then, I began going to counseling again, this time addressing my selfishness and attempt to control others. I also completed the intense course for abusive men. Ellie and our girls moved back home, and we spent the last two years working through the pain that I caused our family. I now thank God every day for Allie. If she hadn't listened to God and had the courage to leave, I wouldn't have had the wake-up call to realize I needed to give up full control of my life to God. Although our journey isn't over, and I have years of trust to repair, God has turned the pain of those dark years of a marriage into something beautiful. And I don't know why I deserve a great family and God's presence through the, the entire ordeal. But the only thing that comes to mind is grace. God reminds me daily how great he is. And I'm amazed at how different my marriage is today as opposed to two years ago. I still experience residual pain from the memories of those five years. That pain doesn't just get wiped from existence once you experience restoration. I can't unlive those years, but even though I sometimes still grieve those experiences and memories, God has restored to me much more than I ever thought possible. 
I've gained a husband who loves me, a partner who walks alongside me, and a best friend who speaks words of encouragement instead of destruction. And those future kids that I had mourned are now a reality, and now I know our kids will grow up in a stable home environment. This is the part where I look at my son-in-law and try and interpret his sign language to me and also cover my eyes. So let me state the obvious. So I will pray and then we will have the buckets and then you'll come up for the blessing. Sorry, we're not, we can't speak in code right now. This is just out there. I can land this plane, <laughs> but the pleaser in me wants to make sure it's done according to your... Yeah, I would say we land it, and then we, uh, cause, um, we'll, we'll wrap up later, and then we'll, um, I'll come up after that, but yeah, let's pray. Maybe share that verse, because I think that verse is powerful. Okay. All right. <clears throat> Here is, uh, here's Psalm 13. And listen, one of the beauty uh, of, about the book of Psalms is it's just raw, in the human emotion. Here's what the psalmist says. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? Look on me and answer, O Lord, my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. My enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my foes will rejoice when I fall. The psalmist is ticked. Hey, thanks, God. Hello. Have you noticed me lately? How long do I have to deal with this again? And it's just raw. And if you haven't thought that way, you are either the most noble Christian on the spinning ball of dirt called earth, or maybe you haven't drilled down deep enough. But look at the conclusion. But I will trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I think the first four verses he's saying, really, unfailing love? And yet he just grabs something in verse five in his confession. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me.